0: This episode is brought to you by TeamDrive, Tutanota and CryptPad. These are three services that I use every day and that guarantee my privacy and protect my data. For my daily work, I need a secure end-to-end encrypted transfer and storage of my files. I also need access, edit and sync while on the go and having total control of my data and encryption keys is very important to me. If you also need all this, check TeamDrive. With TeamDrive, you can access and edit your files on Mac, Linux, Windows, iOS, and Android. You can store your data on-premise on a compatible WebDAV server, or use all three hosting solutions at the same time. You can access and download your files from a web browser too. It's really, really easy, secure, and gives me all the control I need on my data. Because you know, that is my data. If you visit teamdrive.com, or if you are from US, visit sinkion.com, S-Y-N-Q-I-O-N.com. you will get 15% discount on the first year subscription if you use coupon code GADA15, G-A-D-A-1-5. Commercial users can enjoy a free 30-day trial. With TeamDrive, I sync and share with peace of mind. When it comes to emails, I need a service that encrypts the entire mailbox by default. That's how I found Tutanota, a secure email service that protects my emails and my privacy. When everything is encrypted, no one can abuse my emails for sending me targeted advertisements. I love the Tutanota email service because it's secure, free, and more importantly, it has no ads. The Tutanota team is truly passionate about security and they really work hard to protect our right to privacy. Check it out at tutanota.com
1: This is Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence
0: easy for everyone. Here's your host, Francesco Garaleta. Welcome everybody to another episode of Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning easy for everyone. Today I am having a very interesting chat with Philip uh, Piegnieski, a researcher working on computer vision and artificial intelligence at Ko Young Research America, which is a Korean company also based in San Diego where Philip is based too. Uh, now, his adventure with AI started in the 90s and uh, since then a long list of experiences at the intersection of uh, computer science and physics led him to the conclusion that deep learning might not be sufficient, nor appropriate, to solve the problem of intelligence, and more specifically, artificial intelligence. Now I read some of his publications and, uh, and got familiar with some of his ideas, honestly, I have been attracted by the fact that Philip does not buy the hype around AI and deep learning in particular. And it doesn't seem to share the vision of folks like uh, Elon Musk, who uh, is one of the uh, many who claim that we are going to see an exponential improvement in uh, self-driving cars, uh, among other things he already mentioned. Uh, He actually said that before a Tesla drove over a pedestrian. (laughs) So, well, um, you think deep learning is a hyped technology. Now, when have you started thinking so?
1: Hello, everyone. Actually, well, you know, for me, actually, my relationship with with deep learning is a is a bit complex, and it's a love and hate relationship. So um, I I like to refer to myself as being raised as a connectionist. So I'm actually I'm actually a fan of neural networks, and uh, and that was in pre deep learning era when when neural networks weren't uh, nearly as cool as they are right now, um, but um, what fascinated me along along uh, you know neural networks was also that these algorithms were always claimed to be inspired by the brain, and that that interested me a lot in terms of how actually are they inspired by the brain and you know what it is that we know about the brain. Um, so at some point I actually decided to study neuroscience, and uh, it's a bit of a long story, but. Um, after reading a sizable load of, of neuroscience papers and implementing uh, a bunch of uh, biologically detailed models of, of the cortex, I realized several things. And one of which is that our, our machine learning models are really highly idealized and detached from neuroscientific reality. Um, and I definitely learned to appro- appreciate you know, the, the complexity of the brain. We don't really know how the brain works, and, and it's a pretty amazing Device, um, and then I had one other somewhat illuminating experience, which was the study of robotics, um, and uh, not industrial kind of robotics, where you know everything is controlled, but but um, robotics where you try to build a robot that that is supposed to you know be in the environment, uh, which is not controlled, be in the open environment. Um, and uh, it, it proved to be extremely difficult to, to equip such devices with even rudimentary you know co- cognitive capabilities and that's what that was around the time um, you know when when deep learning sort of uh, caught wind around 2012 maybe and when that happened I was somewhat torn apart between excitement and and the realization that uh, you know, whatever I learned about what are the problems of autonomy is not what deep learning addresses and it didn't address back then and it doesn't address right now. So I fairly, fairly quickly knew that these models, although they, they will definitely be useful for a lot of stuff. Uh, they will not solve the problems of, of autonomy and robotics.
0: And uh, indeed, uh, autonomy and robotics is what a lot of folks out there are tackling uh, with, uh, with deep learning technology. So for sure, I mean, the, the, the interest of this podcast comes from the fact that indeed uh, we are probably trying to solve problems that are not solvable with, uh, with, with that technology in particular. Now, I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, AGI, or Artificial General Intelligence.
1: So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of hype right now around this. Um, I think mostly, mostly steered by, you know, the idea of singularity. Um, but uh, in all seriousness, uh, we don't have a definition of what intelligence is. Uh, and it may sound embarrassing, but this field has been like that for many, many years. And, you know, it went under the flag of artificial intelligence. We don't know what intelligence is supposed to be. So the only piece of definition that, that's, that's there really is the Turing test. And, and that states, you know, if you can fool humans into thinking that something's intelligent, then it is intelligent. But um, I'm not quite sure this is correct. So over 50 years, we had the contest of fooling people into thinking that something is intelligent. Um, and, you know, primarily to extract money um, by raising money for investment and grants, we we all know the history of AI winters. Um, but that's that's more similar to some kind of you know magic show or engineering. It's not really you know all that scientific. So I think you know in order to make progress in that in that space, we really need to go back and and try to you know firmly establish what it is that we're trying to solve here. And. Um, you know one of the the somewhat recent ideas that that come to mind in that area is is actually emerging from physics um, out of all the places, um, which attempts to to put, put intelligence as a physical attribute, um something some kind of physical quality. and it sets it up um, as an attribute of organisms uh, that allow them to extract energy from the environment, and that is obviously to support their survival and reproduction. So I really condensed that. There's actually quite a bit of science involved. Uh, you know, there's several interesting papers that try to define intelligence as maximization of causal entropy um, and, and these sorts of things. It's, it's pretty complex, um, but uh, you know, I think it's really exciting because it actually dehumanizes intelligence um, and it accommodates a variety of intelligence levels um, shared by various animals who, are, who live in, on that planet. So definitely, you know, there's a lot of animals which we argue are intelligent, let's say dogs, and dogs, because they cannot verbalize, they wouldn't pass Turing test. So I think these are still early attempts, but I think this is really promising and, and it, you know, grounds intelligence in a broader picture of thermodynamics and the phys- physics of complex systems. It's, it's very exciting
0: yeah it is i mean also the definition that you just gave it's it's something that i personally have never heard uh, before uh, even though there are some attempts from the you know uh, theoretical uh, from cut uh, from physicists and um, yeah there is this kind of uh, relationship between uh, computer scientists dealing with deep learning approaches and and um, uh, you know uh, researchers with background in physics. well one thing is' for sure is that many of the promises of deep learning uh, haven't happened yet and one of them is definitely the one that you just mentioned which is you know the promise of uh, autonomous vehicles. Now to be fair uh, with the research community, we should say that the brain of a self-driving car, if we can call it like that, is not merely deep deep neural networks. Now, what do you think is the major fault in the field?
1: I'll I'll try to summarize it really quickly and then then I'll try to expand on it and and explain what I mean. So I think the main fault is that we assume that we can make a lot of assumptions about the environment. Um, So, you know, it's like we're thinking like we're solving some kind of a game with with well-established rules that could be either learned or coded in. If we put those rules in and uh, perhaps code in some finite number of special cases, it will work just fine. And that works in computer games amazingly, right? I mean, we, we just solve Go, you know, we can solve a lot of games with reinforcement learning. But these are very crystalline and very regular structures where things, and particularly the rules, never change in time. That's not quite true about the reality where, you know, things are non-stationary. There ain't really rules. You know, if you, if you go and drive out there, you'll, you'll be breaking the rules of the road all the time. And not even if you're a bad driver, but in fact, sometimes even to, you know, to drive better and more safely, you actually need to, to break the rules of the road. So this just makes it enormously complex. And, um, you know, what compounds the problem is that in, in terms of, in, in, in the case of self-driving cars, we, we, we play a game of really high stakes. So it's, it's human life that's at stake here, and the sale, safety and liability bar is set extremely high. I mean, I keep hearing this, this um, statement that, oh, humans are such, such bad drivers. Well, of course, there's tons of accidents, which we could probably avoid. But, you know, if you look at the statistics, uh, there's one, you know, road fatality per 100 million miles. That's quite a bit. I mean, most people, you know, will never drive 100 million miles in their life. So the bar is, is set really extremely high and so i think the nightmare of every autonomous you know vehicle engineer is the realization that at some point this this car when it's actually fully autonomous will eventually reach a set of uh, events or or you know circumstances which is outside of the m- domain it's been trained in and uh, i like to call these situation tail events and they cannot really be anticipated in advance and because they cannot be anticipated in advance the, the car's behavior in those circumstances and you know to be fair both symbolic methods and of the good old ai and and, and as well as deep learning are not immune to this problem and this is the central problem of of um, you know autonomy and we don't really know how to do it yet
0: when you mention uh, tail events you actually remind me of uh, uh, Nassim taleb uh, learning from tail events um i'll probably report that in the in the show note And uh, yeah, a lot of current statistical models do not take tails into account, as you just said, uh, neither deep learning. Now, speaking more about how all this is perceived by the media, uh, I found that when researchers announced, for instance, ImageNet was solved, the media confused it with computer vision. And when they announced the successes of deep learning and the reinforcement learning on the games that we know, like uh, AlphaGo, Atari games, and Dota 2, for instance, the media again confused it with uh, high-level intelligence. So, what do you think will happen next?
1: Well, um, you know, predicting the future is, is extremely difficult. Um, <laughs> so I, I can't really, I can't really, you know, say with 100% confidence. Um, I would say there could still be some spectacular successes in front of of deep learning um, but I think I think by now probably a lot of people who invested money in, in AI are expecting the real practical advancements and I don't think you know playing computer games is is gonna cut it really I think people expect you know these miraculous promises now to materialize, which is, you know, autonomous drive coast to coast and and, and so on. And robots that will do some amazing things, perhaps. Um, so, you know, I think it's time to deliver, and I'm quite skeptical as to whether this next level of wonders can be delivered. Um, so my fear is that at some point the patience of investors may run out and, and the funding will collapse and we'll have the, the so-called AI winter, which is, which is not good for the field because there's lots of, you know, good ideas out there. But uh, it, it happened multiple times before, typically when there was a lot of investment, too much hype around the field. And then, you know, what came next was, was um, some kind of depression, which was just as irrational as, as the excitement.
0: Do you think that Google and Facebook are rethinking about AI and, uh, and researching deep learning?
1: referring to them as Google and Facebook, but there's uh, there's several other companies with with big, you know, web online presence. Um, but uh, let's just stick to saying Google and Facebook and have, you know, a couple other companies in mind. So far, I think they've done a, an outstanding job of actually making use of deep learning technology and, and commercializing it. And uh, the reason for that is they are in – they have the – they they have enormous amount of data and a lot of that data is labeled or can be labeled and so they can they can really leverage it but that being said the the use case which they applied it to is is not the mission critical context it's uh, it's more more forgiving you know general improvement of of the internet search you know targeted advertising and and the difference is actually quite important so when you imagine, let's say, you do your Google search on images and, you know, Google returns 10,000 10, images and one of them is completely bogus, completely unrelated to your search. Well, you barely even notice it. it, it no disaster happens, right? It's, it's it's no problem. When you have a self-driving car and, you know, it can even drive 100,000 miles flawlessly and then, you know, on that next mile it makes some kind of really bad decision, really bad you know, identification, um, you know, you have a big problem potentially. So I think Google and Facebook, they they generally, I think, picked up a lot of the low-hanging fruit. And uh, I don't have any insider knowledge, but I would probably guess that they are maybe a little bit confused as to where to go next with this.
0: If we look at how the, the compute requirements of deep learning architectures has increased in the last probably five years, which I believe are the most active years uh, since the last winter, uh, we get up to about uh, 300,000 times increase in uh, uh, flops per second per day. Flops is floating point operations, which is the, the unit uh, used to measure uh, how many operations a, a, a piece of hardware can do and all this is calculated with respect to you know the models of five years earlier now this means that recent neural networks have several orders of magnitude the number of parameters to train are these models several orders of magnitude more powerful than the previous ones
1: hold on let me digest that it's an important question so let's Let me start first first by saying that you know the whole the whole um, excitement with deep learning is uh, in many ways it's related to to the promise of scalability and um, you know the pre pre deep learning machine learning was was very very difficult to scale and by scale I mean basically build bigger and bigger instances that would work better. Um, so, you know, it, it was always a, a holy grail that everyone was waiting for, you know, when will machine learning become scalable? So, you know, when when deep learning came around um, and it, it did promise this, this scale a bit, and then to some degree it is obviously a lot more scalable than, than, you know, pre-deep learning methods. Well, everybody got justifiably excited. Um, but... Um, I don't think it's really deep learning solved this problem entirely. So there's there's still several, you know, core problems um, remaining. Let's say the core problem of training a perceptron is the vanishing gradient problem. And we have definitely improved uh, upon that, but it, we did not eliminate it entirely. So, you know, you can't just create a hundred layer perceptron, you know. Um, I should mention here without bypass connections like, like the ResNet. Um, and and then, you know, train it and expect it to converge. It's just not going to converge. Uh, we cannot scale AlexNet or VGG or any of the state-of-the-art models. We cannot just multiply the number of feature maps, let's say, by 100 and, and expect better results. Most probably, it will not even converge. And if it even does, it's probably going to be the same performance. So scalability is actually tricky with those things and um, there's subtle ways in which we can make impressively impressively large instances of um, you know deep deep neural nets uh, it's not it's not very easy and it depends on the application a lot and uh, also on the availability of data uh, and you know it takes it takes research and a lot of experience there's a lot of people out there trying to build these models and and they are you know they're Definitely, you know quite experienced. So you know it it is possible to scale these things in in certain domains, but it's not like we we have this you know magical substrate which we can just scale you know back and forth without even looking and we just apply more more compute and it gets better. And I think people's peoples had to some degree confused uh, you know deep learning with this with this magical substrate, which you know just just scales without without thinking. So we definitely progressed, but, but but it's it's not the holy grail, I think, of scalability yet.
0: Absolutely. Not to mention the fact that deep learning heavily rely, relies on large data sets to, to learn complex patterns uh, that might be useful for real use case. So if we think about the, the classic example of uh, classifying cats and dogs, for instance, now I believe that, and, and many uh, out there believe, that the brain of a baby Uh, Doesn't need a million images of of cats or dogs probably less than than five you can count on one hand to understand That's a cat or not a dog so What do you I mean what's happening there? What are deep learning folks doing wrong in this specific case?
1: Well, you know, it's not an easy answer, Um, but uh, I can definitely um, you know attest to that babies don't need a million pictures uh, I have two two daughters, and they never needed, you know, a million pictures to be shown to for them to be able to flawlessly detect a cat. So, um, but uh, so
0: you guarantee?
1: <laughs> but <laughs> that was experimental. But um, definitely, humans uh, humans and animals learn learn differently, and they mostly learn in unsupervised manner. So you know, they interact with things, observe them, and and somehow try to make sense about how things work and i think by the time that children begin to verbalize and actually learn labels for things they already have a pretty good you know set of representations for things in the world and many attributes of these things so i think when when a child finally learns that something is called a cat it already knows it's a it's a furry animal with a pair of eyes and spiky ears and um, you know deep nets don't really Gain that sort of insight. Um, they don't learn these attributes. They are just being presented with, you know, let's say, a million images of cats, and there's some statistical, uh, you know, statistical property of these images that allows you to detect, or allows the deep net to detect that there's a cat there. But it doesn't necessarily need to be anything related to to the attributes that that we are accustomed to with with the semantics of what a cat really means. Um, so I think that's, that's the core problem. And, and to some degree, that, that diagnosis has been you know, acknowledged even by the uh, you know, top scientists in the field. If you go back to the 2015 Nature paper on deep learning by Jan LeCun and, and Benjo and Hinton, um, they are the founding fathers of, of deep learning, essentially. And then they finished the paper by, by stating exactly that, that it's unsupervised learning that we really need. And so Jan Lecun in particular had been giving talks uh, recently where he compared unsupervised learning to the cake, supervised learning uh, to the icing on the cake, and then reinforcement learning to the cherry. So I think the problem we have is that we have the cherry and the icing, but we don't have the cake.
0: <laughs> That's a good one. Well, one of the most uh, naive and also probably the most tried strategies uh, by deep learning practitioners is to make a neural model more complex, as you as you mentioned, like uh, you know people will try to uh, expand the number of uh, of layers or or uh, expand the layer, a uh, number of neurons in, neurons in the layer, etc. Now, as a matter of fact, you know by making a network a thousand times bigger, uh, as you said, we don't get a thousand times better predictions, and also a much bigger model needs a much much bigger training data set, which Might mean gigabyte and gigabyte of data, and this brings us to the problem of scalability that you started discussing. Uh, Now, what is the solution to that?
1: We definitely see some diminishing returns here, right? Um, We we scale the things up, they don't work, you know, as progressively as much better as we would like them to. But I think this actually relates to the previous question, which um, the previous discussion on unsupervised learning. Um, So. Really, the problem with data and uh, the fact that it's expensive is because we need labeled data. And, uh, you know, labeled data needs to be labeled, somebody needs to work on it. And that's why it's, it's difficult to get, it's expensive, particularly if you want enormous amounts of it. Um, but uh, if we had a system which, which learns in an unsupervised manner, then, you know, we can possibly get all the data we need because we just gather it or it's already there on the internet. So, for example, if we had a vision system that could just watch YouTube, you know, learn all it needs to learn from there, you know, we don't have the data problem. There's just you know terabytes and terabytes of, of video out there available. So it's definitely a hot topic right now. Um, it's so-called unsupervised pre-training or semi-supervised learning. Um, people try to do some kind of pre-training in an unsupervised way, and then specifically only only do final training with with the label. Um, this this is definitely a step in the right direction i think but i think in order to really succeed in this we need to move slightly further beyond that so i think what's what's um what's overlooked is that uh, people tend to think of data as just being statistics and uh there's actually a lot more to data than just statistics. There's some kind of dynamics which which generated that data in the first place. And I think for the right kind of generalization, the the sort of generalization where we're, we're accustomed to, to learn not the statistics of the data, but we need to learn the features of the dynamics that generated that data. Um, so, this is what I think is going on in the brain, and what, this is what allows it to, to make the, these generalizations which are, I call it, physically meaningful. So we can predict things about the world in a meaningful manner, because we understand the dynamics, not just the statistics.
0: Well, in fact, a very common strategy a lot of practitioners out there use is uh, you know, so-called end-to-end training, uh, that indeed treats data as uh, statistical events, and uh, and usually their their strategy goes like you know in by collecting a tons of images or or data uh, together with their labels, uh, then they learn the uh, image label mapping uh, with back propagation and all that stuff, and then eventually they can tune the model, uh, and at the end they get something that more or less predicts, you know, events that are statistically similar to the one they trained on. So what's wrong with this approach?
1: From purely statistical point of view, there's there's really nothing wrong. Uh, but uh, so there's many applications where you can use that methodology and it's just going to work fine. Um, you know, a lot of there's a lot of statistics, which is definitely meaningful. There's uh, amazing, you know, work in, in fraud detection where where really you know, statistical features are actually quite informative. But uh, I think one has to be really careful, you know, uh, what to expect of such systems, particularly, you know, in applications like Vision, where, where inputs are very high dimensional. So... You know, the way, the way humans classify objects is actually quite quite complex, and it depends on a bunch of things. So humans will, will typically look at the photo, identify an object based on, for example, affordances, which is what I could do with that object. You know, something may, may look like a chair, and that's an affordance, but it could be made of a material you've never seen before. But you quickly identify it's a chair because you can see that it, it has that affordance to it. There's cultural context, there's scene context, there's just a lot of, lot of things in there. So then, you know, we need to ask a question, is it even possible for a system to, to acquire that sort of semantic just from the photos or the samples we provide? Um, and that's, we, we need to remember that that system doesn't know many, many things which we take for granted, you know, that there's, there's embodiment, that there's dynamics, That there's, you know, the law of gravity, for example, right? There's many things the system cannot possibly know. And uh, I think what deep learning shows is that you can actually obtain impressive results, but also when you try to push them to the limits, they they turn out brittle and susceptible to failure. So I actually have a quick anecdote about, about what I mean by learning the wrong thing. Um, I've, uh, I've heard of that uh, experiment. I don't have a citation to it. I think it's an anecdote. I think it's true though. Anyways, um, some, some, some guys were building a, a classifier and uh, they they wanted to classify images of animals and images of non-animals. And it was a relatively simple, biologically inspired uh, you know, classifier. And so, so they, they run it uh, through their training set, and then they run it through their testing set, and it turned out the system that they've built, you know, accomplished 100% performance on the test set. So they were baffled because, because the system was really, really extremely simple, and they didn't expect it to perform so well at all. So they, they started investigating, uh, you know, how is it possible that the system uh, did so well, um, and, and it took a while for them to understand that their, their data set had a bias, and the bias was that the, all the photos of, of animals they had were, were you know, taken with a telephoto lens, and there was an animal in the center of the image and, and blurry background, whereas all the samples which, which represented non-animal pictures were taken with a regular you know, non-telephoto lens, and, and they were pretty much sharp everywhere. So really what the system learned was, was to distinguish, uh, you know, a photo which had a blur in the background from a photo which didn't have a blur in the background. And it happens to, you know, coincide entirely with the label or correlate, correlate perfectly with the label. So I think this is this is the danger we need to be aware of. Um, even if we get, you know, very impressive results from, from these statistical models, we need to... Uh, you know ask ourselves the question is it really has it really learned the semantics um, of of what it, what we mean by this label or or is it some kind of a bias right i think that's that's the that's the very important you know danger in this approach
0: yeah absolutely i mean when you, when you when you look at the problem in a statistical way of course that's the risk i mean bias is something that statisticians are familiar with since you know decades or more uh, not to forget, indeed, that all validations of such models, you know, the one that you said are um, uh, based on statistics, uh, they usually have been performed on data that, indeed, have the same statistical distribution of the training data. So we cannot expect a neural network uh, or a statistical model to classify uh, new data or unseen observations that, are, that diverge too much from the, from the distribution of the training set. Uh, so as soon as indeed this distribution diverges, uh, you know, from from the one of training data, usually these models stop performing at least as as good as they they the claims the claims were. Now, when I started with uh, this is kind of an anecdote an anecdote with uh, with my background, when I started with data science, actually with mathematical statistics, uh, an old professor of mine kept saying. Uh, something like this. Get a very, very, very high dimensional input data and it is very, very, very likely to find some funny correlation. <laughs> so uh, recently I found a, a, a website, um, which I will report again in the, in the, in the show notes, uh, that collected uh, ridiculous but effective correlations uh, and they're called spurious, cor- spurious correlations. And, and I had the proof of what my old professor said um, that, you know, many times we can find in data, whatever we want to. Now with this said, I think that many people are confusing spurious correlations with intelligence. And uh, it seems like uh, you have a different approach to machine learning an approach to uh, predict the entire perceptual input along with the labels in order to make a system that can extract the semantics of the world, which is the most important thing to, uh, you know, to learn from a machine learning perspective, rather than learning just spurious correlations. So can you talk a bit more about this new approach?
1: Uh, it's I think it's related to, to the property of high-dimensional data, which you've mentioned is, is the curse of dimensionality. Um, so, I you know, I think, you know, we cannot visualize what the 100 or 10,000 dimensional data looks like um, what people typically, you know, the intuition they have is it's, it's you know, two or three Gaussian clouds, which are just happen to sit in a very high dimensional space. Uh, but uh, I don't think this is the case at all. I think I think this this very high dimensional data actually looks like more like a convoluted fractal or, or something rather than these nicely separated Gaussian clouds that we are used to. So, um, you know, it's it's a. Um, it, it actually, is to some degree, we can, we, can, we can get an intuition on that. There's this phenomenon of, of deep learning, which is susceptibility to adversarial examples. So, uh, you know, we, you can train a classifier, and then you can only tiny bit modify the input, and you, you can get completely misclassified uh, samples. So it seems like, like deep learning cannot really cover that, that very, very convoluted manifold very precisely, um, and, and I think these, you really need to be very precise with your separation of your data to, to, to have a semantically meaningful, um, you know, uh, classification. Um, so I think part of the problem is that the task we're applying right now is, uh, it has this property that you get, you know, 10,000 dimensional input, and you only have a few bits of the label. And so there's just astronomical number of ways you can you can assign a hyperplane that will separate you know the input data such so that you, you you get your label um, so i think we need we need more label but what does it mean how can we get more label and the idea here is well why don't we input itself now that's a well known uh, that's a well known methodology um, you know it's called autoencoders essentially um, but here the idea is a lot more a, lot, a little bit more subtle um, you try to predict a dynamical uh, evolution of the data. So we assume that data has some dynamics. We feed in online data and we try to predict, um, you know, what the data will look like, you know, a few steps, a few steps ahead. So I think the way the way well, let me try to explain why I think this should work um, is try to, let's, let's maybe try to analyze it a little backwards. If you have a good, if you can predict, if you have a good model of the world, let's say, if you know how things work, you can definitely make predictions about the future. In fact, science is all about it, right? You you have a good theory as if it can make predictions about the future, and then you test it. And if it makes good predictions, it's a good theory. You keep it. If it doesn't make good predictions, you you, you don't keep it, right? You have to invent something new. So if a machine learning system is able to predict its inputs. I would argue that it means it has a model of these inputs. It has a model of, of the dynamics that generates these inputs. Um, so, it's a bit backwards, you know, um, explanation of, of of it. But I think we should we should focus on building, uh, you know, a machine learning substrate, a machine learning model of some kind, which has a chance of learning these dynamical relationships in the data. Uh, and not and not just assign it, you know, a human picked label, which is just probably. I think it's just too much for the system to expect. I mean, it does work for deep learning to some degree, but it, I don't think it has a chance of of actually extracting the semantics.
0: For sure. Well, you you named this approach um, a predictive vision model, PVM. Of course, to the first reader, uh, without going into too much detail. Uh, you would think something like uh, it looks like a series of autoencoders and uh, lower dimension autoencoders. Autoencoders, for the record, is indeed an, a, a, a way to reconstruct the input from the input itself, just with a, 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 a fewer number of dimension. Now, how different is PVM from uh, a series of autoencoders?
1: Well, so I, I think, first of all, I should say, you know, PVM is, is not so much a single model, but... Uh... It's actually a family of models which which share some core assumptions. So I I like to think about it as a set of associative memory units. And they're organized roughly in a hierarchy. That hierarchy has a feedback, a lot of lateral connections. And the task of each associative memory unit is, is to try to predict its own input and also represent this input in some kind of a compressed representation. And then when it does it, it can share share that representation with other units. So maybe there's something predictive of of what my neighbor is doing that I just processed. Maybe it's the vice versa. Maybe the neighbor has something for me. So they they sort of exchange this context and feedback, and they also send their, their, their compressed representations to the downstream units to process in the same manner. So it's this mishmash, this this collection of of memory units. And it actually can be implemented with with a perceptron. Um, That's how we initially implemented that. But uh, there's also other ways to implement it. There's many, many, many associative memories out there. So one thing I I did very recently was was generalized Hebbian learning with neural gas quantization. But there's many other possibilities. So it's a a general concept. Um, And... I think what's important about PVM is, is I'm trying to state a slightly different task than, than what's been stated in, in machine learning. I'm not associating with labels. I just try to learn, you know, the inputs, learn the inputs and learn the inputs dynamically. Um, and there are several features uh, of it, uh, which, uh, you know, it, uh, I could talk many hours about it, but but just for just for just for. Um, to very quickly say it, it's a, it's a multi-scale model, right? It doesn't assume any, any particular many, many small units at one end. And then, then there's a fan in and you can put more and more units in the next layer and even more units in the next layer. It doesn't have any specific, um, you know, scale at which it operates. And that's important because when you have, when you think of vision, you know, uh, op- objects can appear at all sorts of different scales. Important things can appear at all sorts of different scales. So you have to have that, that cross uh, or scale-free capability in it. There's many, many interesting feature features about it. And one important thing I, f- I think, which is, which is also important is that it doesn't really depend on, on the backprop algorithm. Um, you know, deep learning almost exclusively uh, is limited to backprop uh, algorithm, backpropagation. And, um, and this thing isn't, it it can be implemented with backpropagation, but it doesn't have to be. And which I think is, is, um, is important. Uh, for some reason, I think we should not be, you know, uh, limited to only one algorithm really.
0: For sure. And also in the attempt of, uh, emulating a biological brain, I'm, I'm, I would like, I, I would like to make a statement. I don't think that the biological brain does backprop. <laughs>
1: There's there's not much evidence for for backprop in the brain, definitely.
0: (laughs) Well, um, speaking about PVM, how does this approach improve scalability?
1: Um, So one important thing to note is that it's a collection of units, and and each one of these units basically does local learning. So there's no global training signals, and if there's no global training signal, then then there's no vanishing gradient problem, um, for one thing. So... Because of that, that architecture can be scaled, you know, vertically, horizontally, whichever way you want, um, you know, your range of lateral interactions for feedback and context. This, this whole thing can be very liberally wired and independent of how you wire it, it. It always converges very well and you can build, you know, very, very tall hierarchies of features with it. Um, so, the Obviously, many questions remaining, um, but, but this freedom of, of wiring actually resembles, you know, the way the way biological brain is wired in the cortex. Um, so there's, for example, each unit can receive massive amount of feedback, which is actually the case the case in the brain, which is which is puzzling to scientists right now. Even for early vision, um, you know, primary visual cortex get gets more feedback connections than it, than it gets uh, than it gets primary connections. So. Uh, PVM definitely shares that feature. And you can also interpret it different dif- differently. It's a, it's a massive recurrent neural network with tons of feedback. But that feedback uh, goes across across time and space, and it's self-stabilizing. So there's a, there's a way of seeing it that way. And, and you can also see it as a, as a de- deeply nested, uh, you know, recurrently nested, simple recurrent neural network. Which which makes this the structure of PVM itself resembling a, a fractal, which is good because you want to be scale free. So it's 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 there's a lot of interesting things about it.
0: Yeah, it it is indeed. Like uh, it looks to me much more uh, similar to to how a biological brain might be working, even though we don't really know you know 100 percent how the brain works. And uh, but this seems to be. Uh, you know, closer to what deep learning is trying to do uh, with the with the backprop and all the other uh, mechanisms uh, uh, and tricks, mathematical tricks, apparently.
1: Maybe I just add a, a small point on you know it, it, on how it all came together. Uh, you know, we definitely. I've I've been actually studying you know how the how the biological brain is wired. I've mentioned that uh, you know earlier, and um, you know at the same time. You know, I was fighting with this robotics problem, and and at some point, you know, several things came together, and and so it occurred to to us the team the team that was involved in that project is that hey, here's how we need to wire this thing to actually, you know, get something meaning meaningful signal from the environment. And when we did wire this together, it actually did look like the cortex, which was which was quite surprising on one end because we didn't really wanted to build a cortex up front uh, without knowing what it does you know there's a lot of people trying to do that you know there's many 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 simulations very detailed you know simulations of the brain which you know try to simulate it but don't really have the principle behind it in terms of what is what the function actually is. But here we actually, you know, we came we came to the function initially, and then and then when we wired it together, it did look like the cortex, which you know I think it's it might be on top of it.
0: it's something. Yeah, that for sure. <laughs> well, um, recently, relatively recently, some researchers have been uh, speaking about and, and also proposing some some proof of concepts about adversarial examples, which is a way to uh, perturb the input. Uh, in a way that is not you know, perceivable to, to, to the human eye, uh, but still uh, they will alter the label and so they will basically fool uh, the deep learning network um, consistently. Um, now, when you apply such a method to computer vision, the, I'm talking about the PVM, how robust is, it, is this approach to adversarial examples?
1: I think that the problem of adversarial examples is highly related to the task that we're trying to solve uh, with with deep learning and that's that's uh, image classification. And even the way we derive these adversarial examples is often basically hill climbing on the on the gradient so we we will you know condition the network on on some input and then Let's say we want to change the, the classification onto something else. So we will then back propagate that gradient onto the image, and then we slightly modify the image, and, and we get a misclassified example. Now, now PVM doesn't work like this. It's not a feed-forward system. It's, it's a recurrent system, and there's no single readout. There's no single label. Um, so you can't really derive a gradient-based um, you know, adversarial example for it. Um, maybe there's another way to do it. I, I frankly, I don't know, but um, definitely it, it does get fooled much like humans do get fooled as well. You know, when you give it an object that's similar, you have to train it with an addition of, of a readout. You have to you have to add this um, this final classifier which will say, hey, based on these representations that I learned in the model, can we actually classify if there's an object there? So that's an additional neural network which tries to read out. Um, and so once you do it, then, then you can you can try to fool the network and, and you know, make it see something which, uh, you know, looks similar. Now, I haven't done much, much study in the subject, but, uh, you know, based on the way it works, I would not be too surprised if it was uh, potentially vulnerable to the same kind of illusions that, that humans are vulnerable to. It's a a very complex, uh, you know, matter because a lot of optical illusions that that humans actually are subject to uh, originate from the retina. So we have to isolate those uh, from, you know, the more semantically relevant, you know, illusions. So it's it's not an easy, you know, thing to say. But I wouldn't be too surprised if it was the case.
0: Sure, but even if that were the case, like, uh, it means that PVM is clearly emulating the biological brain. Uh, Definitely better than deep learning, because, you know, if a a human being will get fooled by the same image uh, as much as PVM would get fooled, well, then uh, it means, I mean, by analogy, I would say the two methods work similarly.
1: You know, as as much as I'm I'm super excited, you know, uh, about the PVM, I I just, you know, want to say this is an early step. um, And I think that the, the cortex is extremely, extremely, you know, complex. And it also evolved, you know, for a, you know a couple billion years. So there's m- maybe a lot of things there which are very specifically pre-wired, which you know might be innate. So you know, I think building artificial brain is, is quite a bit of a task. I'm not I'm not claiming by any means that I build one, um, but uh, I think I'm just trying trying, trying to approach it from a, from a slightly different direction than than what you know the mainstream deep learning does.
0: Absolutely. Uh, while creating a predictive model of the sensory input seems to work for for vision, at least according to your um, experiments, uh, how does this new approach generalize to language models?
1: Well, language language is a is a can of worms, and pretty much only only primates have uh, evolved a, a sophisticated language. There's arguments whether, whether other animals have, have de- evolved other, you know, more primitive forms of language. But that it's definitely something very, very advanced already. Um, so it's far down the road. Um, I'm definitely more concerned with early perception. Uh, but that being said, uh, what comes to my mind is uh, there was one experiment that actually OpenAI did um, they, uh, some time ago they, they did a study where they trained the neural network on character prediction. So they would treat um, language problem as a, as a, as a um, you know, pr- prediction of, of a character in a sequence of characters. And, and so that's how they trained it. And then they found that there's an internal representation of their which could be decoded to inform the, the sentence sentiment. So that's actually quite interesting.
0: Was that the 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 convolutional neural network, if I'm not wrong? Um,
1: I I think it was more something like an LSTM. Um, I'm not I'm not exactly certain on the details right now. So I think so, so some kind of LSTM-like network for for sequence prediction. So. Yeah, that's interesting. That's that's the sort of uh, you know very 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 similar to the way we we actually applied PVM to object tracking, which was you know you train you train the, the thing on visual on the video of things, and then you actually read some kind of label prediction or train for for label prediction on a smaller label data set, and you find out that these representations are actually meaningful. Um, but there's other there's lots of other things interesting in in early early sensory processing. Um, one example is uh, there's multiple modalities and uh, you know we typically think of vision but but there's there's a hearing and these are actually related and um, actually all our senses are are very highly related so one example which comes to mind is called McGurk effect uh, and if you haven't seen it yet you definitely should check it out on on youtube um um, it's it's an effect in which um, you know you're presented with with a particular sound, but then you're being presented with two different uh, um, motions of lips. And depending on the motion of lips you're being presented with, you're hearing different sound. Uh, and it's it's really amazingly strong illusion. so which which basically tells us that what we're seeing is actually incredibly strongly affecting what we're hearing. It's it's uh, it's, uh, it's really fascinating. So you know how, how come such an illusion take place? Uh, it's it's very very intriguing, and uh, one explanation which which pops into mind in the context of PVM is that you can have you can have these these structures, um, you know, tr- trying to predict their own, liberally wire them with feedback. So if there's something predictive, you know, in addition for vision those units can pick it up um, from this feedback connections. And so you, you have the ability to learn these things, uh, which is definitely useful for, for your survival. Um, when, when, let's say, your auditory input is in conflict with your visual input, it certainly indicates that something is wrong. Perhaps you should pay attention. So it's it's no wonder that you know evolutionary that could be beneficial, and then PVM you can do it you can do this cross model prediction as I call it very easily. It's it's just you know a matter of of saying hey I want to wire this structure to this wi- this structure, and then if there's anything predictive, it, the system will pick it up. If there isn't anything predictive, well you know these connections just ain't gonna be used. So. You know, you can definitely design design a deep learning model to do that as well, but but PVM just seems to accommodate that naturally, and, and that's why I think I'm onto something.
0: And I do too, Philip. I'd uh, I'd like to close this episode by quoting you on the deep learning hype and uh, the way researchers and practitioners should really behave. Uh, you said uh, in uh, one of your uh, posts on your blog uh, when you were speaking about uh, uh, Gary Marcus that he behaves like a, a real scientist as uh, most so-called deep learning stars just behave like uh, cheap celebrities. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. I might have been a bit, uh, you know, one of the most controversial parts of my, of my post. Um, but, you know, frankly speaking, you know, science progresses one funeral at a time. So I think every scientist has a bit of a conflict uh, on one hand we we are attached to our uh, to our you know views and we should have some persistence to push our agenda if we believe something you know if you if you have a new idea initially no one's going to believe it no one no one will think it's a great idea but you're the one who thinks it's a great idea you should persist for a while because it actually could be a great idea uh, so you don't want to let it die, but on the other hand, if it turns out that it's not really a great idea, then you should you should you should put it to rest, right? So if, if there's really good evidence saying that you're wrong, you should you should change your mind. So it's difficult; it's definitely not easy. And um, I think in science, you know, w- we should really be careful about balancing these two. And uh, you know, the scientist should be the first one to criticize his theory. And and be try to be fair about it, and and um, I think there's a little bit too much excitement right now in the field. Uh, I mentioned Gary Marcus, who's been you know, uh, he's a well-known sti- scientist, um, and 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 he was. He, I think what he basically states is that we shouldn't be arrogant, and there's many others uh, who who say the same message. Rodney Brooks, you know, a founder of founder of iRobot. Very accomplished roboticist, um, you know, AI researcher, actually famous, you know, he had plenty of good ideas in, in the 80s. Um, another great example, Benjamin Recht from UC Berkeley. He just recently shown a, a very interesting paper on reproducibility on the CIFAR-10 data set. There's many others like Judea Pearl, Michael Jordan, you know, Ali Rahimi, Douglas Hofstadter, some of the big names that, that come into mind. And you know, growing number of voices and they are saying, hey, you know, we should probably have some healthy skepticism about this. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't definitely consider myself an enemy of deep learning. Uh, actually, on the contrary, I use it all the time. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. But at the same time, we shouldn't really be naive about the capabilities and we shouldn't oversell it because, you know, people will will ask us to deliver and we might not be able to deliver and that might not end very well.
0: That's a very good point, Philip, and uh, indeed more science and less hype. It was very nice to have you here at Data Science at Home. I'm sure that our listeners enjoy your point of view and your realistic conclusions about the state of deep learning and uh, definitely what we should expect from it. Thank you very much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: This episode is supported by Cryptpad.fr. As I need to edit documents in collaboration with colleagues and friends without compromising my privacy, I found CryptPad to do exactly that. It encrypts my documents so that their contents cannot be read by the cloud or the NSA, not even CryptPad themselves. That's called zero-knowledge encryption. CryptPad is private by design. You can try it for free and share rich text documents, source code with syntax highlighting, markdown-based slideshows, whiteboards, and Kanbans for task management. You also have space for files that you can upload and they will stay encrypted, stored on dedicated servers, replicated with daily backups. Go to cryptpad.fr, C-R-Y-P-T-P-A-D dot and try today. This was Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. If you like the show, don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. You can also find us on datascienceathome.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and get the latest updates. Thanks for listening. Hey, are you still there? Well, let me tell you about the newsletter of Data Science at Home. It's my free digest of the best content in artificial intelligence, data science, predictive analytics, and computer science. Subscribe now, DataScienceAtHome.com.